0: Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston.
1: Sure. Yeah, I have no plans. Uh, okay, cool. You know? Hi. Hey, how, how are, are you? you? Good, thank you. Good. How's your mom see you. doing? She's good. <laughs> She's good. It's a sunny day at Walt Disney Studios, and I'm trying to keep up with a very important director. So what are you working on right now? Uh, This, I've got this podcast that's launching. Oh yeah, you going to do that, right? Yeah, We are. That's what we're doing. Like, you don't even need to do anything more than you're doing. As you can Um, hear, I'm not tailing Steven Spielberg or J.J. Abrams, though you might expect that, since white guys have long ruled Hollywood. That voice? It's Ava DuVernay the African-American director, or, as she just popped into her Twitter profile, just a girl from Compton who got to make a Disney movie. She's here putting the finishing touches on what's by far her biggest budget project to date, the adaptation of the novel A Wrinkle in Time. It stars Oprah, Reese Witherspoon, and Mindy Kaling. The significance of what she's doing is not lost on her. She thinks of it every time she walks up to that reserved parking space.
2: This uh, spot says Ava, that spot says Ryan Coogler, and that spot says Kenya Barris, has blackish. So this is like the black building. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All the black people. It's a big deal.
2: It's a very good building, by the way. But, you know, you have three productions headed by black creators here, and that is Kenya. And that's a
3: beautiful thing.
1: This spring, there are a so pair nice. of black directors behind two of the biggest the potential blockbusters of the season. In fact, they're working on the same floor. Ryan Kugler and Black Panther, and, uh, and DuVernay.
2: Oh, I love walking around a lot. I do, I do, and, and even when I get, get in my car and drive up and see my name on the, on the thing outside of my uh, building, that hits me. I don't take, take it for granted going through the gates. Knowing that, you know, this is not uh, the norm in this town um, makes me feel grateful and also wanting more people to experience it.
1: Forgive me for starting the story of Ava DuVernay by focusing so much on race, because her story isn't technically about race, but it also is. And that's because of both this moment and her special role inside it. From the moment DuVernay got the gig, the phrase emerged, a headline employed seemingly everywhere, the first woman of color to direct a $100 million film. Part of me wishes we didn't even have to talk about money. Her work speaks for itself. Remember that little movie, Selma, that was nominated for an Oscar? But here on the lot, watching DuVernay work, you get a glimpse of how things are slowly changing. We're talking about how important it is to simply have more people of color inside those gates. And then we run into actor Blair Underwood, just sitting on a bench, and he runs over and gives DuVernay a hug.
2: How
0: are you?
1: I miss you. How's the film going? It's
2: going well. All right, good. I'm going to ask you to come good. take a look and give me some feedback. Call me. I'm
1: around. Okay. Pleasure meeting you. i right, my pleasure. Yeah. Hi, Blair. There's a lot riding on a wrinkle in time. The stakes financially and culturally are enormous. She's already the first woman of color to direct a film with a $100 million plus budget. Now she can be the first to earn back those millions. And there's something else. In the post Harvey Weinstein universe, maybe Ava can be something more the antidote. I'm Washington Post national arts reporter Jeff Edgers, and from The Post and WBUR in Boston, this is Edge of Fame, a podcast about the life that happens before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Ava DuVernay has forged her own path, and along the way has been silently and not so silently, paving the way for other women and people of color in Hollywood. It's a busy time for Ava DuVernay, but then again, it's always pretty busy. Follow her on Instagram, and she's seemingly everywhere. At Harvard Accepting an Award, or at the Time 100 event, where DuVernay gave an inspiring speech about the woman who inspired her, her Aunt Denise.
2: So Denise has ascended to another realm, one of those realms that she would always study. That was over a decade now, that she's with me every day, especially in a room like this, where she would be in awe of everybody here, just like I am giving the power of influence to great minds and spirits that she'd meet because I understand fully through Denise that influence is a privilege that depends on people giving it to you.
1: Denise Sexton was a registered nurse who never married or had children. Instead, she worked at night so she could spend her days doing the things she loved.
3: Plays and museums and exhibits and concerts and, like, that was her thing. It's just art, really. Mm. All that was kind of like my window to anything that was in school and what was in my house. Because my parents didn't talk about politics and they didn't travel. All they did was work.
1: Denise had a bit of a thing for the classics.
3: You know, you walk into her house in Compton and, you know, it's classical music playing. People were like, turn that shit down! And it's like, you know, Bach or whatever.
1: So she was really a rare bird. And that bond, they only got closer as she got older. Ava was devoted until the end, moving in with her on after she was diagnosed with stage four cancer.
3: They'd said like maybe a year. I think they'd said like less than that. It was really sad. And so I moved her. I said, you know, where would you like to live? And she had always went to live in Belmont Shores in Long Beach, which is this white, tony area over there. So I said, "Okay, let's do it.
1: This is as good a time as any to explain how important family is to DuVernay. And by that, I mean both her biological family and the professional family she's created. Because for her, both families are inseparable. And there really is no taking a break from either. Here we are, after an awards show in L.A., and as you can tell, she's not at some cocktail party clinking glasses with celebrities.
2: So what things do we want to get? We want to be a beef and broccoli, put
1: it out? Ava's mom is here and her sisters and niece. Like so is the work family. Tulane Jones, who started with her as an office assistant 10 years ago and now runs Array, her distribution company, and Michael, her assistant throughout Wrinkle. I even start to feel like I'm more than just an observer. Hi. This is my sister Gina. Tara,
2: you know Mrs. May and Molly, and you all, you
1: all, you
2: guys did. This
1: is our Uncle Jeff. I'm recording this entire conversation. I know I'm here as a reporter, but you know what? I'm okay for a little while playing Uncle Jeff. I like this family. DuVernay never went to film school. She was an English and African-American studies double major at UCLA. But now when she thinks back, there were hints that she might end up running things. For example, childhood playtime, all business.
3: And it was serious. It was like, this is my side of the room. This is your side of the room. Like, we're going to prepare. Everybody's going to get their Barbies together. Costumes. You know, you make your house, you do your thing. And then the story
1: started. Ava's mom, Darlene, married young at just 16 and had Ava two years later. The marriage was an abusive one, and her biological father was out of the picture when Ava was very young. She doesn't have a relationship with him now and calls him a stranger. Her mom worked hard, first as a bank teller and then in human resources, and saved up to buy a home for her family. Since
3: a very early age, she owned a house because her mother, my grandmother, told her we have to have
1: our own homes. Ava's mom met her stepfather, Murray May, the man Ava considers her true father, at a club. And they were opposites. A quiet man from Alabama and a life-of-the-party type from Compton. Pop's had his own business and went to work every day laying carpet and tile and hardwood.
3: Very humble. Um, Didn't like flash. You would never catch him with a wrinkled shirt or every morning he'd get up, press his jeans... Press his jeans, press his denim. Be like, Pops, you know what I mean you're going to work to Lay Carpet? Gotta look clean. Gotta be clean.
1: With both parents working, they were able to move from Compton to Linwood, and eventually to Long Beach, each progressively better neighborhoods. And education was important. Darlene saved enough money to keep her in private school, Catholic school, from first to twelfth grade.
3: But, I mean, gosh, she really sacrificed. I remember times where she really had to negotiate with the nuns because she needed more time to pay the tuition, and it was constantly mortgage and tuition, mortgage and tuition.
1: By the time she was a teenager, Ava was involved in lots of clubs and lots of causes. She was the first black homecoming queen at her high school. And even if her home life was generally calm, outside, her world was on fire. This was L.A. during the reign of police chief Daryl Gates. With his battering rams and hovering police copters, that's when being black and young was enough to get you searched and sometimes worse. There's a reason groups like NWA emerged.
3: It's kind of like when you're living in it, you don't discuss it because it's just a part of the fabric of the neighborhood. Right. You know, But certainly, you know, was clear that it was wrong and an impressive environment in that way. Like you could tell from your parents that, they, that it was not cool that these things were happening.
1: As a young adult, Ava planned to become a journalist. And in college, she landed a coveted internship at CBS News. But it's a dream that quickly ended during one of the biggest news stories of the 90s.
3: Late Friday night, the camera flashed and the picture revealed an exhausted O.J. Simpson. It wasn't a paparazzi photo, but a mugshot. And I remember getting in, I was at UCLA and I was just like, this is it? I'm about to be... Producing the news. I went to produce. Producing the news and going around the world and, like, tomorrow. And, um, and I was assigned to the OJ unit, and I was digging through a juror's trash. I was assigned a juror. Still have the packet. This is your juror number, whatever it was. And I went to this woman's house. I sat outside her house, and on the street were people like me from every network.
1: She realized maybe journalism, at least that kind, might not be the best fit after all. After college, Ava became a publicist, working to promote films like The Help, Dreamgirls, and Invictus. She went on to start her own firm. And so she started spending time on movie sets, learning about good shots and efficient production, but also about the not-so-good stuff.
3: I didn't have any, any women to watch direct. The sets I were, was on were all men. And, and they weren't very inclusive. It was just a whole bunch of men making this thing.
1: Ava was 35 when she directed her first project, This Is The Life. It's a powerful documentary, but technically speaking, it's raw. DuVernay was learning to direct by doing, by remembering what she had seen on all those movie sets, and by getting some tips from an unexpected source.
3: I would listen to DVD commentaries, which I was really hooked on for like a couple years. I've listened to so many DVD commentaries, but I thought, these are gold. Nobody knows. This is like the best film
1: school. In the early days, Ava was scrappy about putting together the movies. Without major studios backing her, she had to be. And to make her first feature, 2010's I Will Follow, based in large part on her aunt Denise, she had to do something almost unthinkable. Remember how much her family emphasized the importance of owning your own home? Well, Ava took money she had saved up for a down payment and spent it on her movie. I Will Follow cost $50,000. The film was followed by 2012's Middle of Nowhere. Price tag, $200,000. It's a stunning piece of work, centered around the main character, Ruby, a nurse whose husband has been sent to prison. As she worked on more and more projects, Ava drew people in, or even more notably, kept those she loved close to her, like longtime editor Spencer Averick, who she'll tweet out as her brother, even if he's a white kid from a town just north of San Francisco. They've now worked together for a decade.
0: She has this combination of being one of the strongest, most direct people I've ever met, but also being this sweet, caring, empathetic kind of teddy bear. It's not, you know, either this or that. It's all mixed up into one personality.
1: Ava herself is quick to point out that she has a clear sense of what she wants her set to feel like stars are important. This is Hollywood. But for her, there's no reason to cast a prima donna or a difficult personality just because he or she is famous.
3: You try to have like a no-asshole policy because life's too short. Um, but also you want a, a certain energy like a, an actor that needs to be coddled and that needs to be handled that way. My set is not the set for them.
1: She can't resist directing. Even when it's my interview. At least she's tactful about it. Um... I don't want to screw up. Oh, OMG, it's eleven thirty. All right. Alright, so is there something oh, about gosh. how you um uh, um
2: We've been talking for an hour and a half. So. I'm leaving. All
1: right. No Is there something about how you I watch Okay, all right. Uh, why don't we take a little break, get some popcorn, and we'll be back in a minute. The first time I met Ava was in Washington, D.C. the fall of 2016 at the opening of the African-American Museum of History and Culture. The museum had commissioned her to create a short film for the museum's theater. This wasn't some orientation flick on how to find the gift shop. The cast included Don Cheadle, Lupita Nyong'o, Angela Bassett, and Regina King. And there was Ava, surrounded by her team. I didn't know her, but I followed them to an elevator and scrambled in. There they were, black, white, men, women, and all laughing and chatting. I introduced myself to Ava and told her I wanted to do a story. And that feeling I had as I watched her creative family that I didn't know who these people were, but damn, what fun it would be to be part of this, was right on. Just listen to David Oyelowo, who played Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in her film Selma.
0: I've never cultivated the kind of friendships and, and had the time Uh, on any other movie as I've had on films I've done with Ava. She is literally like a blood sister to me and that is by no means the norm and it's what she brings out in people. I'm so glad we're here together today. I thank you for standing up for we shall be victorious in our quest. We shall cross the finish line hand in hand. We so awesome. All right.
1: Ava directed Selma in 2014, chronicling an important chapter in Dr. King's life. Ava was invested in every aspect of the story, even drawing inspiration from her family in Alabama. Here's O O again.
0: Before Ava came on board of Selma, the women in that film said little to nothing and certainly uh, were not on the page. For instance, uh, Coretta, Scott King, as played by Carmen, she didn't even have a full scene in, 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 in the film as was before Ava came on board and rewrote the script.
1: And then, she didn't get credit for the script writing she did. British writer Paul Webb, who wrote the original screenplay, didn't want to share credit. She still regrets backing down without a fight, and Webb wasn't particularly generous when she complained. He wouldn't talk to me, but a couple years ago, in an interview with the BBC, he seemed to play it both ways. He said DuVernay's description of rewriting the script was, quote, highly exaggerated. But he said the Lyndon Johnson in the final version of the movie was very different from the one in his script. He said DuVernay made him look racist when he wasn't. Ava doesn't get into the particulars, but she does explain how it changed the way she works.
3: What I got out of that experience was to really kind of curate the people who are around you in a much more kind of deliberate way.
1: Ava curates, as she says, and she also looks out for people, even when she has a certain big-budget movie coming out soon and her staff is stuck working long nights at the office.
3: It's 11.30. What do you think? What's your ETA? Well, it was 12. Now I'm going with two. Uh, can I get you anything? Pinkberry Postmates can deliver (laughs) it. what's up?
1: Later I pointed out this was a little bit unusual I mean how many big Hollywood bosses make a Pinkberry run for the staff?
3: I mean it's 11.30 at night on a Friday and both those women have children so I'm just like sorry that they have to be here but I, I guess it's I'm happy that that whatever it is you're seeing comes naturally to me because I don't think about it and I don't Why would you not? Why would you? You're in here, and these people are out here, they're working on the movie, and why would you not just check on them?
1: It all feels so neat and perfect. How this seemingly good person gets the big movie, she's glowing, confident. But like any story, it's not that simple. Even after Ava, by most people's definitions, had made it. After Selma, she expected the next big project would just roll in. It didn't, and she was crushed.
2: I need a movie, I need a movie. Why am I not making a movie? Why don't I not have a movie? I made So I did well. Why don't I have what all, you know, my white boy counterparts have? Why don't I have? Why, do, why, do, why does, I like, uh, he's my he's the whipping boy for all this and he's such a nice guy, but how does Colin Trevorrow go from Jurassic World to straight into Star Wars? Like, you know what I mean? From the little indie in Sundance that we both did, sitting side by side at Sundance with our films in 2012. You know what I mean? And this goes from that to Jurassic World to Star Wars. And I go from that to Selma and there's nothing else on the horizon. That didn't feel good. And that had me in a depressed place.
1: Not Depressed, but just desperate. And at a particularly low moment, she called a friend for help. And I don't mean the kind of friend you and I have.
0: Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah.
1: Hi there. How are you? Um, uh, Very nice to meet you. And uh, really, thanks so much for talking to you about Ava.
0: Oh, I love my Aves, and I'll you know I I do anything for her. So happy to do it.
1: Selma had brought them together, close together, and when the younger woman called, Oprah did her best. Oprah,
0: you know, it was a come, it was a it was a you know it was a come to Jesus talk. It really was, and I I've had a few of those myself. I, through my friendship with her, recognize the deep love that Maya Angelou had for me that I didn't see while she was alive. So I understand from my perspective where I've been, what I've seen, what I know, how I've grown through this whole fame chain, uh, how it works. And so to be able to say to her, uh, you know, if you just keep your eye on the prize that is your work, that is your art, that is your offering, everything else will show up.
2: And I had this amazing, amazing conversation with her where she basically said you're holding this all way too tightly. You are doing something which I always tell people not to do, desperate. When you're desperate, you know, you, uh, you know, are, w- are weaker when you're desperate. You don't have a movie now nothing you being upset about it all day is going to do to change that you don't have a movie right now. So you need to redirect this energy from a place of desperation to a place of, because you're going to end up making a bad move and taking something or anything, whatever, and move it and, and shift it and make it more productive.
1: And she's like, she was using
2: her my own words
1: back to me. Later that week, she got an offer.
2: Uh, a call had come in from Disney to talk about some property that they, they wanted to do called Wrinkle in Time. I was like, what's that? never heard of it. I <laughs> <laughs> never read that book. Before. I never read it. No.
1: Duvernay also possesses a special ability to be outspoken and to channel her frustrations, her activism, into something productive. Hence the Oscar nominated documentary 13th. The title is a reference to the amendment that freed the slaves. She traces a line from post-Civil War America's treatment of ex-slaves to the mass incarceration of today.
0: Laws were passed that relegated
2: African Americans to a permanent second-class status.
0: When you cut on your local news at night, you see black men being paraded across the screen in handcuffs.
3: Virtually no one who is white understands the challenge of being black in America.
0: And when you make people afraid, you can always justify putting people in a garbage can.
1: DuVernay may be thoughtful, collaborative, but that doesn't mean she shies away from conflict. Last year, she tweeted about President Trump and Russia, writing, this is not a movie plot. This is our real life. And folks are just sitting around and watching. I don't get it. She even tweeted out support of journalists fighting Disney, the company writing her checks, after Disney banned the Los Angeles Times from attending their press screenings, after the paper had written an article about the company that it didn't like.
3: And I thought I didn't want to be the kind of person who didn't speak up for something that I thought was wrong because um, it would benefit me to be silent.
1: Ava doesn't just preach, but practices the change she wants to see. At an event for BET last year, radio personality Charlemagne the God asked Ava how and why she creates opportunities for people who might not otherwise get them.
2: I just don't, I don't understand wanting to be at a party by yourself. I really don't. I don't like being the only black person in the room. I just don't enjoy it. So I don't like being the only black person at the photo shoot, the only black person at the meeting, the only black, I just... So if that's if they're not going to make it happen and they're not, then and if I have a way to make it happen to bring more in, then why? Why would you not? I think I just.
1: You've heard the excuses, not just in Hollywood, but in every industry about women and minorities not being experienced enough for certain jobs. You know, people in charge would love to diversify if they could just find qualified people. Ava deals with this straight on. She hires them, opens that first door.
2: Because in Hollywood, in the entertainment industry, it's all social. It's who you know. You know when you at the club. I, I recall, people have told
0: me, at the club.
2: <laughs> you know, if you know the situation, you can get yourself in. If you're in a certain thing, you can get that table that you want. Like, it's just Hollywood is wired like that. The real inclusion and diversity is going to be when we know each other. It's not checking off quotas of how many women and how many black people you let do the job. It's, um, do you really know us and feel comfortable with us? And do we feel comfortable with you to be our true self?
1: Reese Witherspoon has worked on more than 40 films. Wrinkle's crew was easily the most diverse team she had ever seen.
0: She had fought really hard to get that crew together. It added extra work to people. And I said, you know, how did you do that? And she said, whenever I was presented with an option, that was just, you know, I was told there were no other choices for for people, for every job. She just really said, no, I want to see every single resume for every single job.
1: And then there's the issue of the snowball effect that Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement has had on the industry. I asked her what she thought of all that was happening for women in Hollywood.
3: Uh, I don't know. It's just, it feels like a top coat being scratched off of something that has so many layers. And, you know, I mean, replacing, what? Okay, 20 guys. Make it a hundred, guys. It does not solve what the issue is, which is a, a really deep-seated ignorance of their own privilege and the systems that you know benefit them at the expense of other people, women and people of color alike, right? How is the whole system being interrogated? How are we unpacking what the core issue is? And because you won't have true change, you'll just have some some transition, right? So, so I'm, I'm observing it all, and I'm, you know, I'm always hopeful, hopeful that there'll be, I think something is, is coming from it.
1: Ava came to a wrinkle in time with fresh eyes. Her creative vision will be a little different than the original book. It's set in South Central LA and stars a young African-American girl as the lead character played by Storm Reid.
3: She's just a black girl who has no superpowers but ends up doing extraordinary things that she didn't even know she could. And I relate to that. (laughs) I relate to that.
1: I know I've said this, but I'm going to say it again. There's a lot riding on this movie. But Ava didn't seem to sweat any of it as I followed her from the edit booth to a photo shoot to an orchestral scoring session.
2: One of my favorite parts of the process because of the cherry on top, you know, when you get to actually. I mean, it's emotional when you see these people here doing this. Anyway, it's this one of my favorites. That's my legacy.
1: While the music played, Ava listened intently, and when the session wrapped, it was time for an Instagram group picture. Let's
2: just say hi to a few million people on Instagram. Here we go. Ready? And... Wait, so I'm going to pan around.
3: Here we go. And...
2: Hi!
1: Ava approaches her life with a mixture of determination and acceptance. It's a striking combination, one that seems to not only move her career forward, but also keep her grounded and kind. I'm not really saying this right. Uh, How about I bring back Oprah?
0: You know, everybody has a supreme destiny, I believe. And the job is to figure out what that is. But when you hear that thing inside yourself that says, oh, I could do that, Oh, I have a story to tell. I know that there's more. Uh, I think that's part of what uh, resonated with me and her, with her and myself in this friendship.
1: And Oprah knows this fact very well. In this insanely unbalanced world, being the first isn't hard enough. The real challenge comes after. The question is, can you keep on going? Will you have that chance?
3: All I can do is make the movie. And then I put it there, and I make the next movie. But the thing is, for women and people of color, it's harder to make the next movie unless that thing hits. And if you want to have a career and be consistent in this business, like, you know, I want to be Spike Lee, I want to make 20 films in 20 years, right?
1: You have to be able to, everything's not going to hit, and you have to be able to keep going. And while she might be held to a different standard, a sentiment that many of the people I talked to echoed, Ava stays totally focused on making the movie great. She says the pressure she feels is artistic. The rest, it'll work itself out.
3: If I fall out of favor in feature films where I can do, you know, narrative films, I can do doc. If they won't let me make films anymore at a certain price point, I can still make them indie because I've made them for $50,000. If, um, if I can't make films, I'll make TV. If I can't make TV, I'll do commercials. If, you know, I'll do the installation at the Smithsonian. I'll do the, the Prada ad. I'll do the, just to diversify.
1: As she awaits the movie's release, Ava remains Ava, the big-time director who's just glad to be out with her family.
2: Everybody's grabbing some? Yes. So do we want to order, order, you guys? You know what you want, want? I Usually they'll say crispy, but they really won't be crispy.
1: If you haven't already, please subscribe to Edge of Fame on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a positive review. It helps others find the show. Edge of Fame is a production of The Washington Post and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. This episode was produced by Mary Dew and edited by Jessica Alpert and Iris Adler. Sound designed by John Perotti. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert, Jessica Stahl, and me. For more information about today's show, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Edgers Podcast. You can drop us a line at edge at WBUR.org. And if you do the Twitter thing, you can find me at Jeff Edgers. That's Jeff spelled G-E-O-F-F.